but then, you know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashan. I'm joined, as always, by the original Long Island Iced B, Benny Scala. Benny, you're in Virginia right now. How you doing, buddy? How's Virginia my, treating you? My first broadcast from beautiful, scenic Manita, Virginia, and I'm thrilled to be here because, like the T-shirt says, Virginia is for hookers. Uh, Virginia's for lovers, Benny. Not anymore. <laughs> well, well, the lovers of, of your kind of money, then. Right. <laughs> You know, we've been having a lot of fun recently with the uh, themes and kind of roundtable discussions on different things. And you and I got to to pick in each other's brain. And you said something that really struck me about wrestling being a team sport in that everybody has to work together. And and we've had we always talk about the legends and, and how legendary is used too often. Um, but a lot of people don't focus on. The underneath guys. And we wanted to talk about that kind of, the, you know, the, the importance of a good worker to get somebody over to work with the guy who's working with the guy. Um, so we wanted to talk about that, but we had to bring an old friend back. Benny, why don't you tell everybody who's joining us tonight to, to talk about the important work of the other guy in the ring? Yes, sir. And he was with us just a few short months ago. We're so glad to have him back. Our brother from another mother, Randy Hogan. Welcome back to Dan and Benny in the ring. Thank you so much, guys. It's good to be back again, and especially talking about uh, uh, the underneath guys, okay? Because I'm probably one of the most famous jobbers in the world, brother. We we couldn't think of anyone else we'd want talking about this topic <laughs> when we came up with it. Oh, uh, that's great. I'm so glad that was on your mind somehow. That <laughs> keeps me relevant. <laughs> hey, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have you around if it wasn't such a pleasure to talk to you, and you didn't have Absolutely. your... Uh, I guess ran, random maniacs out there, right? There you go. I got uh, uh, a whole universe full of them. There's a, there's a legion of random maniacs, right? That's right. Running wild, brother. And I got my uh, I got my random mania shirt hanging up in the closet. So I got mine on my body right now. Nice. I don't know if you can. Y'all can, folks can see at home. There's. Randy Hogan on my autograph wall behind oh, look me, at that. too. Yeah. Aw. You'll bring tears to my eyes. Yeah, the the uh, your your WCW promo with the robe and the hands on the hips. It's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, last time you were here, you mentioned um, you were told before your first match that your opponent was going over. And you, you said you said you weren't even sure what that meant. Um, if you had to write like on a piece of paper, if, or if you were writing the the art of putting someone over, um, what would what does that mean to you now? Well, well, today's uh, wrestling is different than the old days. Wrestling, it's the mindset is is completely different. Um, Depending on, on where you were on the uh, on the totem pole, um, it was so important to know to know what uh, what's going on with your uh, with your opponent. Usually, that comes from the booker: uh, who's going to win, who's not going to win. Um, but as far as being able to work, that that word is so it's used, and most people don't even know how complex that really is to work in a match, you know, there's the, the psychology, which means somebody's got to have a, uh, 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 some kind of a gimmick or, or, uh, like a gimmick match where the, the under guy gets a chance and he's actually going to maybe beat him, but he never does. But, uh, you know, the referee's got to be in on it. Uh, he keeps usually time, um, of the match tells you pretty much when to go home. And the uh, you you learn to read the crowd. That's part of working. Also, you know, if you're doing something and the crowd's just sitting there doing nothing, 
you got to change it and you got to be aware of that. So you try some different things and then all of a sudden uh, the fans pop and, and okay, here we go guys. And that brings the excitement up, which is what a wrestling is supposed to be. You know, it's kind of like that, uh, that curve. It, it starts off kind of hot and then it slows down a little bit. Then it's hot at the end again and then something happens, but that's all part of working. Okay. Um, Reading, reading the crowd—that's that's that's something that you can't be taught. You got to learn on on your own. You know, people can tell you, you know, watch for this or listen for this. Listening, I think, is the most important thing. Whether you're talking to your your opponent, talking to you, or the referee is giving you some kind of instructions, whatever, you got to learn to listen, and not only outside the ring but inside the ring. Randy, so, like anyways, this, that's my answer to work. Call a call a match. Like an experienced yep. underneath guy against a, you know, maybe a less experienced main event guy. Absolutely. Would, would you be called? Yeah. You would. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, I was in one of Dustin Rhodes' first matches when he was teaming up with Kendall Wyndham. They were the young Broncos, I think. Wow, you're going way back. Yeah. Well, and so Dustin had me in the corner and he froze. I mean, usually someone just push you in the corner of the ropes. They're going to say something, you know, elbow, move, whatever. But he just froze. He forgot everything. He didn't say anything. So then he started, and this is all like maybe 10 to 15 seconds, but it sounds like an hour. Uh, but he uh, he just totally froze, didn't know what to say, what to do. So at that point, I called him until we got into the finish, which was, you know, only a few minutes away. But uh, I told him, I said, to throw me an elbow. He used to do the old Dusty Rhodes elbow thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So he threw me across the ropes or across the ring, and I hit the turnbuckle and bounced out, and he gave me that bionic elbow thing, and then he tagged uh, Kendall Wyndham, and that was the finish. But I had to call probably the last couple of minutes uh, of the match. So things like that happen, too. If you've got a... Uh, a guy that's really going over, okay? A guy that's really built up big and has got it all, but he just doesn't have the experience. A lot of times they'll put him in with the experienced guy who can call the match or call part of the match anyway um, and make it, then knows how to work. Go back to that word again, you know, because a young guy that uh, isn't even confident on the mat certainly doesn't know how to work. So the old guy, the, uh, the Randy Hogan or the George Souths of the world or Mario Mancini's or, or Barry Horowitz, whoever, you know, all these entities guys were there. Sometimes they would put us in with somebody that, uh, you know, it was going to be a short match, a squash match or something. But, uh, you know, we sometimes have to call it because you never know when, um, a mistake's going to happen or an accident's going to happen or, or somebody trips out a rope and so the guy over that doesn't know what he's doing all of a sudden the spot that he had lined up is gone so he's sitting there what do i do now well that's when the experienced guy says okay do this do that do this and then you get back into the rhythm of the story line you know it's like you're going from one place to the other and you can go to the right and get there. You could go to the left to get there, but it always ends up the same place. So, um, that's the same with the rest of this. If, if the, uh, if the right side doesn't work, then you've got to know how to get to the left side and then get back to where you need to be. So kind of a win-win in my opinion, because you know, the promoter, from the promoter's point of view, you know, having the experienced underneath guy, even if it's a, you know, a younger, inexperienced uh, main eventer, you, they know that they have that backup that just in case that, you know, the, the, the main eventer, the younger main, main eventer loses his way, you have that yes. old older experienced guy to set him straight. And then from, you know, for the younger guy, he, he's going to learn from that. Yep. And if the promoter or the booker or whoever is is smart, they will do that, okay? But a lot of them will put, uh, say they got a guy that makes him into a big monster, say a, a Vader-type guy, okay? They'll, they won't put him in with an experienced guy very often. They, um, they'll put him in with just a piece of meat that he can just beat up and everything else, and it's over with, you know? Um, 
sometimes they will put an experienced guy in just because he was a body and he was there. So, or he can take whatever the over guy is doing. You know, he may have this brutal, again, I go back to Vader, you know, stupid monkey flash or whatever. He came off the top of the second rope, you know, and, and squashed the guy. Um, he had that. So you had to kind of know how to, how to save yourself. Cause if you just lay there, don't know anything. And he's coming down with close to 400 pounds on you and he pancakes you, which happened. Um, you know, you got to know how to protect yourself. And that, uh, that's part of what should be part of training. You know, it's not just the offense, it's the defense and it's not just the physical part, but it's the mental part. There's just, there's just so many, so many tools it takes to make a good match. Um, and very few people have it. A lot of them get it through experience. So that, you know, doesn't mean that you have to get it in school or a training school. Of course, the schools are different too. There's a, you know, there's a few good ones right now. Um, but they used to almost all be good back in that day when you had, um, the, the monster factory, you know, Larry Sharp was going Larry Sharp, yeah, more. New Jersey. Yeah. So, uh, you know, with Killer Kowalski and that, and they taught it well. Now, you know, they, they're more on the offense than the defense. And I think that's what a lot of the old fans complain about, bitch about, don't want to watch it. They complain about AEW because they do this. And I mean, I got like complaints with them too, you know, but you still got to appreciate the athleticism that these guys and girls have nowadays. Now, they may not have the wrestling skills, but they got everything else going for them. <clears throat> to compare, you were talking about that, <clears throat> excuse me, working with the, you know, the up and comer versus the monster, you know, you're going to get the squash or, or whatever yeah. it is. Um, it, when you're, for lack of a better term, preparing, what, what do you think takes more work from you as, as the underneath guy it, to go out there and, and do the minute and make it look really good for the, the Vader who's going to crush you in a, you know, or, or your, um, I know in your time in the NWA, you were on the receiving end of a couple of Road Warrior beatdowns. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, somebody like that where the match is, is, is a minute or you go out there against somebody like a, a Mike Rotunda or a Kevin Sullivan and have a four or five minute match. You, you know, you know that you're you're not, you know, you're losing, mm -hmm. but you still have to put it at which one's kind of a harder to do to, to put on the mildly competitive or to still look good when you're only in the ring for 30 seconds a minute. Well, for that squash match, matches like that, the uh, hardest part is getting over the fear of walking to the ring and getting in in the first place. Because you know something, you're going to get hurt or something's going to happen. Um, but yeah, you're going to be in there for a minute. You, when you're in the locker room, you're thinking, well, what can I do for a minute? You know, just can I just at least get a punch into his gut or something? You know, something offensive. What can I do? Um, but you really you really can't plan it uh, because you're just going to be uh, thrown around by the big guy and he'll do what he wants to do. And, uh, you know, if, if he's nice enough to let you have a, a punch or two or, or grab a headlock at least or something, that's, uh, uh, that, that, that's very unusual though. As far as the longer matches, uh, those, um, you have to pay, more attention in the ring listening to the guy like you said against the rotundo or or kevin sullivan even when he was a good guy you know he was terrific um a couple of times i got to work brad armstrong who was really technically amazing um so you think about when you're going out there okay what can i do because in this even though say a brad armstrong is just calling the match you know the finish whatever He's going to give you something, you know, he's going to, you know, after a beat down or something, he's going to say, come back, you know? Um, so then you get your shine then you get your comeback and you get to throw a couple of punches and do something. And when he's ready, he'll cut you off. But again, you know, you, you got to think back and that's why good training is so important because 
you know, you're going to do mat wrestling. You're going to do real catch as catch can or wrestling. Um, you know, you're going to do headlock takeovers and you're going to do, uh, not just body slams, but, uh, um, flying head scissors, you know, uh, things like that, that people don't see much of anymore, but uh, you get those spots in. And when you're working on a good guy, they're usually the nice ones. And, uh, so as far as preparing for it, you just try to think of any spots that may come up that you can do, but it's a feel. You just go in there, you know, and you know, you, you trust the guy that he's not going to hurt you. Uh, he's going to call it, you know, I'm along, you got two or three minutes, so you don't have a long time. Even with that, um, unless you're in a tag team match, then you only get a couple of minutes. But, uh, yeah, so the, the biggest thing on your mind with the squash matches is not getting hurt. And with the uh, with the good uh, wrestling matches, like with an Armstrong or somebody like that, um, that's your chance actually for the promoters to see that wow, this guy knows how to wrestle. So maybe they'll push up a little bit. Maybe you won't. You know, in the old days they had like uh, like Flair used to love to work with George South. I used to work with Midnight Express and with Sting. So. Um, and you get used to working certain people and you got to earn your way. Even that way, people don't realize it. You, you know, you'll start in like a piece of meat for a Vader or somebody like that. And then you work your way up and they know when you want to see what you can really do. And next thing you know, you're in the ring with, uh, like I said, a Brad Armstrong or, a, a technical, a technical guy, you know, like a Chad Gable or whoever it may be, Brian Danielson. All them guys, they they like to be on the mat. They like to wrestle, wrestle. <laughs> you know, it's so. it's fu- it's funny. You you mentioned the Midnight Express. Uh, I was watching some old tapes. You know, just kind of getting ready for the the show. And you had an NW. This was um, 1988, I believe it was 88, 89. You had a tag match against the Midnight Express on an NWA show. And one of the, the the opening match of that show was Eddie Gilbert and Mike Jackson, and mm-hmm. Mike Mike Jackson just wrestled here. Well, here being relative to where I live, not but a few weeks ago. I think he's seventy five and still going. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Him and Chick Donovan. Chick Donovan no one's still going. Still looks good too. Yeah. Um, I see. Uh, I see Mike. I used to travel with Mike all the time. Mike is the one that first got me into NWA. But, uh, yeah, he's still going. I wish I could do that. But, you know, walking the top rope and, and stuff, ticked out of it. And I, from what I, I don't see a whole lot, I, I watch, um, you know, on Facebook or something like that. But from what I see, he's either wearing a wig or got a, a, a hell of a transplant going on up there. He's got the long, thick blonde hair like he had 40 years ago. The size sprawling yeah, but hair. But he's still man. muscled up. Still muscled up, you know, still looks great. But I can't think of any old guys other than those two that are, uh, that are still going or even still interested in it. It's funny how many wrestlers... They either are fans and they love it their whole life and they watch it like I do to to today, or once they quit wrestling, they never watch it again. They don't want to talk about it again or nothing. So, yeah. But me, like I said, I watch as much as I can. Randy, uh, Dan and Benny in the ring would not be Dan and Benny in the ring without a baseball reference. So several of the great <laughs> pitchers in the history of baseball had they had their designated catcher. For example, Sandy Kopax, the great left-handed pitcher on the Dodgers, always wanted Jeff Torborg behind the plate. And uh, Steve Carlton, lefty of the Phillies, wanted uh, Tim McCarver. Now, neither of those guys will never be in uh, Cooperstown, but because they were so good defensively and they knew how to handle the pitchers, um, they were gainfully employed for many, many years. So, and you kind of alluded to it in, in your previous comments. But does does a good underneath guy get that reputation amongst the main eventers, where like a guy like a Ric Flair actually requests that they work with a certain underneath guy? Absolutely. Um, you know, I never sat in the office when they're putting the matches together or whatever. 
sometimes it's funny you can tell because they don't have time to change the sheet. You know, when you come in, there's usually a bulletin board and, and they have a, the sheet, which is all the matches, how long they're going to last, uh, when the interviews are, who the interview it's all like, laying out, all laid out for you. But a lot of times you'll see this name scratched off and this name scratched off and put it in another place and put it in another place. And that's what happened. You know, like, say Flair would be with, uh, uh, would be, uh, with me. He goes up, he said, you know, I'd rather work George South. Okay. So they scratched me out and put me down with somebody else. Uh, so yes, they do have their favorites. Okay. With me, I think it was the Midnight Express and, uh, probably Sting. Cause I worked them the most. Um, Flair, like I said, Flair like uh, George South and Greg Price was his name, I know. I remember the first time Price was so scared and uh, Flair came into the locker room and said, Price, I'm going to make you look like a million bucks today. And he did. I mean, because Flair always gave the other guy something. Whether it's throwing him into the corner so he makes that flip or whatever, uh, it, it didn't matter. Flair understood and respected the you know, underneath guys for what we actually were doing for them, um, and they want to do the ones that'll that will let them shine as much as they can. You know, um, if it's just a squash match, all the guys going to do is beat you down, beat you down, beat you down. Well, it doesn't show anything on him. But if he beats you down and you come back and you start beating him down or throwing him in the corner and the crowd goes, wow, that's what you're trying to get. So these guys know by watching and by working with us in the ring, you know, what we can do and what we can't do. And um, the ones that can complement, you know, whatever their gimmick may be, those are the ones they tend to get. So, um Kevin Sullivan was another one I, I worked a lot of times. And, and you get a, a bond. I think my strongest bond was with Jimmy Cornette and the Midnight Expresses, as I call it. Yeah, because, you know, they had a few changes with uh, Condry and Stan Lane and Randy Rose and all them guys. And I worked, I think, every faction of them. Um, let me see. Who else? That was about it. But like I said, I had some guys that I was always working and that's because they wanted to work with me or they wanted to work with somebody else. So, so to answer your question, yes, they did have their favorites and they did have enough. Some of them had enough clout to say, I want to work this guy, this guy, this guy. And they got what they wanted. That's what they pay them a million dollars a year for. Just curious, um, kind of unrelated side question. You, you mentioned working a lot with the Midnight Express and, and Cornette. If if someone were to Google Randy Hogan wrestler, one of the first pictures that comes up is a black and white photo of you posing, uh, you know, bicep flex and Jim Cornette next. Yeah, can you kind of tell us the story of that picture? Do you remember it at all? Every minute of it. That whole thing was strictly an ad lib thing. They were doing a. a um, a story for Wrestling Illustrated was doing a story, just a little one in their in focus page. It had Hulk Hogan standing there, you know, with Fred Blassie with the 24 inch pythons. A little story about it. So I was just coming back from the uh, from the ring. I forget who I worked, and and Bill Apter and Craig uh, somebody was photographer was there. Anyways, he said, "Come here, Randy." I said, "Okay." He says, we're doing this thing on Hulk, and I wonder if we could do just a little short tongue-in-cheek thing with you. I said, well, sure. So uh, Cornette was just to the side and heard this conversation. He put himself ready. He walked right in and said, yeah, I'll do it too. Let me do it with him. So he got it and said, you know, do the, pipe, the 24-inch pipeline. Do he said, now, don't flex. Make, a, make some kind of a crazy or a mean face. Put your arm up, but don't flex any kind of a muscle or anything. And it was all ad lib, and that's what happened. <laughs> so that picture, yeah. And then I ended up in, like I said, in the uh, it said Randomania versus Hulkamania. It was kind of saying that Randy waited to, wait to win his first TV match and do this, and 
and millions of people like them and millions of people hate them and, and uh, all this kind of stuff. But anyway, little story, Randomania and Hunkomania. <laughs> and that did a lot for me because now those that didn't know me and read the magazine and finally saw me say, wow, that must be Hulk's brother or something. Because it didn't allude, never alluded to any uh, relationship that way. But they said, wow, he looks like Hulk Hogan a little bit. His name's Hogan. He must be his brother or something. So that's what it was. So I get in a little National Guard armory and kids come and say, you're Hulk's brother, aren't you? So, yeah. <laughs> it's show business. I'll be whatever you want me to be. You know? Right. That's great. Uh, but yeah, that's how things happened. It was just all ad lib. They had an idea for a story they wanted to do with Hogan. And they said, wow, would that be funny to put the other Hogan on? And that's how it happened. That's that's great. And, and I'm know, still dear friends with Bill after because of that. <laughs> another another friend of the show, too. Absolutely. Ah, you, you, wonderful. You know, you talk about managers. It, it's it's a great example because so many traditions uh, and, and old-time old experiences of wrestling have kind of fallen by the wayside. The use of managers is a great example. Uh, the interview, the true interview, as opposed to the promo. Uh, we mm-hmm. were just talking about Cornette. One of the things he always harps uh, AEW for is they, they do the interview segments, and the wrestler takes the microphone, and the interviewer leaves the ring, and it's like, well, that's not really an interview. Like you're kind of ruining it there. Um, you know, we, we don't see very many two out of three falls matches. You don't see very many long matches. Uh, but to go back to what we were talking about, uh, another one that we really don't see very much anymore is the squash match. Um, I know Benny coming up in, in, you know, just a few years before I did. And then when I was younger watching the, like the NWA and the early WWF and yeah. the territories and AWA on ESPN, you know, you always, saw the squash match. You felt like felt sorry for the guy getting beaten up. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, but that it business numbers draw box office. It proved that it worked and how important that type of match was. Uh, <laughs> and as a kid, I always, you could always tell when, when they would have the big pomp and circumstance of, you know, King Kong Bundy or somebody coming out. And it's like, and his opponent already in the ring, Jim yes. Smith, like, well, uh, Tough break for that guy, you know. Um, but in your opinion, how important was the squash match? And as someone who follows the product still today, how's the lack of it today diminishing the product? Well, back in the day, squash matches I think came about because they used to they used to build characters which they don't do much anymore. I mean, uh, the Sheik had his fighters, no matter where he went in the country, because they had the territories, you know, they all knew him and whatever. They had characters. Um, Hulk Hogan was one of the last characters, the Undertaker character. Um, back in the day, though, the characters were like Dick the Bruiser and 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 actually Kong Bundy and that, big, strong guys. Uh Again, like I said, whoever was underneath, it's their job to make them look like monsters, which they did a lot in the old days. Nowadays, you don't see that much. You got guys that are big, muscled up, uh, and everything else, but there's no, there's no big characters anymore. There's no big characters or stars. You know, there's no Hulk Hogan's, there's no King Kong Bundy's even, or Haystack Calhoun in the old days, you know, and the McGuire twins. Um, and you go on and on to that, but they built characters back then. They don't do it now. So therefore, they don't need squash matches anymore, because there's nobody that's they're building that is strong enough, or big enough, or mean enough to actually do that on a regular basis. Um, I think there are some people they can probably do that with um, or could have done it with, but they just waste so much talent. Not only AEW, but uh, um, WWE too. They just get guys and they lose them and then they get uh, picked up. And and now the big character, you know, is uh, uh, MJF, okay? Does great promos, unscripted and everything. And that's what he's known for. People, Eddie Kingston was that way too. I don't know what happened to him, 
but uh, they would cut a good promo, and that's what they're known for. But uh, there's not anybody known for anything anymore. Like you said earlier, you know, as far as a finisher, no such thing. There's no, uh, you know, when uh, Vern Gagne gets you in a sleeper hole or Wilbur Snyder got you in the abdominal stretch, okay? Those were finishers. Nobody gets out of them. Today, everybody gets out of everything. Off the top rope, uh, through a table, off the, the, the balcony of the arena or something. doesn't matter. They just, uh, they just don't have a main event person that, uh, that is really carrying the ball. Now they had the rock again, who I mean, could work. Okay. Too, but his, I think his promos were hilarious. Okay. Cena worked pretty well. Um, got a big head at the end, but, uh, again, he was, they carried themselves a world champ. Now you see, uh, Seth Rollins just got the world title. He doesn't carry himself as a champion. He's got this goofy clown type gimmick, you know. I mean, I love his clothes and that, but he comes out with that stupid laugh and and pushing everybody to sing a song and that. And that's not carrying himself like a professional, you know. At least from an old school point of view. When when in the old days you had to dress up coming to the arena, you had to wear a sport coat. I never saw Flair. Uh, in, in, in casual clothes. He always had a sport coat, uh, a lot of times a, a tie. Um, and that's how it was in the old days, or at least in NWA, WCW. Like I said, it was mandatory. You didn't come in there looking like a slob. Now they look like a slob outside the ring, and half of them do on the inside of the ring. I just, uh, but I think that's the biggest, uh, oh, the biggest difference. In, in squash matches is there's nobody now there's a plenty of guys worth squashing but there's nobody worth there's nobody out there that should be a squasher as of now gotcha. in any of these things they just uh they just got a lot of guys that they're putting over but they're not building them you know how many years did it take to to build bruno san martino uh, you know, behind the scenes, and then to build the story where he kept a title for what, seven years, I think, or something. Almost eight. Yeah. Yeah, and Hogan the same way. You know, you know, the, you know Hogan when he was out in Minnesota with Gandhi in that AWA, and he was, uh, you know, he was Terry Boulder and a couple other things. But you know, it, it took it took a vision and a long time, I think, for uh, Vince McMahon. To come up with a concept that okay, I need an all-American hero that everybody can look up to. He probably was thinking that for a couple of years. All of a sudden, he saw Hogan. He says, "Hmm, maybe I can do something." And the rest is history. He did. You know, Randy, you, you just jogged my memory. When I was about thirteen or fourteen, I actually wrote a letter to Vince McMahon Sr. Um, mm -hmm. and I complained that. Uh, you know, why don't you have more even matches on TV? All you ever do is have these one-sided matches. And, you know, now, you know, 50-some-odd years later, I, I realize exactly what he was doing and how, you know, how valuable it really was. I mean, you had to take a guy like like an Ivan Koloff or a, or a superstar Billy Graham and give him those squash matches because you were getting that guy ready for Bruno. You know, eventually you're going to yeah. get him, you know, you're going to uh, put him against a Dominic DiNucci or a, uh, a Chief J Strongbow, and yeah. that'll that would be his last win, and then that now he's ready for Bruno. But like it was so formulaic, but it it, it sold out the Garden for so many years. So you know why even mess with it? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, again, it's a lot of it is just vision. You know, um, vision on on how they want their promotion to go, how they want the matches to go you know, where they want to be in five years or, or at least where I'm going to do with this guy in the next couple of years, barred, you know, he's not on drugs or he doesn't get injured or anything. Um, I think that's cut short a, a, a few uh, rising Magnum TA type stories, you know, in sure. 30 years that uh, these guys are groomed or all of a sudden something stupid happens. So, so Randy, uh, we were um, 
we were saying that, uh, you know, uh, on the one hand, you have the, the, the main eventers that specifically maybe look for an underneath guy because they were so good. But on, on, the, on the flip side, as an underneath guy, were there some main eventers that you didn't want to work with because they had the reputation of not being so professional or, you know, considerate with you guys? Well, yes. I mean, you don't have um, to mention names, but if you do, we don't mind either. I would well, I ain't afraid. <laughs> Vader was probably the one because he had already broke a kid's back. He had no um, no respect for any of the underneath guys for whatever. He wouldn't give them anything, and he wasn't uh, friendly either in the ring or outside the ring. And that reputation goes real quick. So now all the underneath guys say, I ain't working him. I don't want to work him. I ain't working him. And they bitch and complain. Um, and then finally, I think they told Vader to, uh, you know, he's got to ease up a little bit. And he eased up a little bit. And then he left. Uh, Abdul the Butcher, he was another one. Because you never knew what he was going to do, but you knew what it was going to hurt. So <laughs> a lot of the guys, you know, and just, you know, looking at Abby in the ring as a fan, um, he really was that intense. And if he hurt you, oh, well. Um, now the World Warriors, you mentioned earlier. Is that what it was? I mean, did they feel like the, the underneath guys were expendable and not? Oh, yeah, not? yeah. Just throw out the trash, you know. The garbage man will be here Monday and we'll have a whole new bag full on a Wednesday. So that was it. Yeah, just, yeah, I don't care about this guy. I don't care about this guy. And if there was a glimmer of hope that the guy had some talent or they wanted to do something with him, say a mid-card guy, um, they, would, they wouldn't put him with a Vader or whatever. They would save him from that misery. So those are the two that really come to mind that, that you're going to get hurt. Now, in the beginning, the Rogue Warriors were that way. Um, the difference is they didn't do it on purpose. I mean, if they hit you over the back or kicked you or did something, they weren't trying to hurt you on purpose. They were just green. They were just so big and strong, they hurt yeah. you, you know? But again, you know, we talked about who to work with or whatever, and I worked them, I don't know, probably four or five times. But you make your way up the, up the ladder. For instance, when I first started, they used to beat me down and take the pin on me. Then after a couple of times, if you remember, a lot of times on TV, they would rush the ring. They would throw one guy out of the ring. Right, They exactly. put the other guy up the on other guy. Uh, animal's shoulders. and Yeah, so it was maybe a, a two-minute match. So I got to be the guy, after right. a while, that always got thrown out. Now, was that not an easy 250 bucks? Oh. <laughs> really? You go in there. You don't get hit. You don't get nothing. You get thrown through the ropes on the floor and you sell it like you hit your head or your back or something. You couldn't get back to help your partner. But, uh, yeah, so you graduate. That's, well, that's how enhancement guys either stay working or get moved up a ladder to some of the better matches. Um, and I mentioned a lot of times with these guys, you know, you don't bitch, don't complain. Thank you. Your opponent, you know, no matter what gets under you in that. And as they learn to, respect you as a wrestler, not just a piece of meat, then they stop treating you like a piece of meat. Like I said, the Road Warriors, you know, they'd, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd take their vengeance out on the other guy and not me. Uh, <laughs> other tag teams, they would take the pin on the other guy. You know, I wasn't the one always getting pinned for once. Uh, and you are you are that right. So it's like anything else, you know, you promote or whatever. He's the boss, and you do what he says, and you're going to be taken care of. And if you don't do what he says, you're going to be short lived. I don't care if you're working in a factory or working in a wrestling ring. It's all the same thing. How, how did it feel though to to look at the booking sheet and then you saw that you were going to wrestle Abdullah the Butcher or, or Vader? That that couldn't have been well, very pleasant. You know, they, you're sitting in the locker room, you do nothing, some guy playing cards or whatever else, do some coke in the corner, and all of a sudden, <laughs> somebody comes down with the sheet and puts it on the board, and you're almost scared to go over there and look at it, because you know, no matter what it is, it's not going to be good. 
Um, sometimes you lucked out. Uh, sometimes you you earned your space, okay? Like George South, I think I did to a certain extent. Mike Jackson. Uh, but yeah, so you're going over there and you see the Sheik and, or somebody and it's you against that duel. You say, oh shit, you know. So now if you're the first match, it's not as bad. But if you're third or fourth match down, you're sitting thinking about this all the whole time. You're scared to death. And if you get out there, one of the first things, you know, you got to relax in the ring. Even from a lockup. You know, you lock up, you look like you're intense and, and banging each other, but you're light as a feather. And uh, you got to be relaxed because if you're all stiff and nervous because you've been worrying about it for, uh, you know, 30 minutes, and now all of a sudden you're out there, you're stiff as a board, that's when you get hurt. That's when right. the bumps hurt more. So, so yeah, you look at it and you say, oh, shit. I remember once I was against uh, the sheep said there's being somebody against the Midnight Express. And uh, Road Dog or B.D. James or whatever you want to call him, um, he was set to go against Vader. He went upstairs. He came back, put the sheet up, said, Randy says, I'm sorry. And there was, he changed it, put him against the Midnight Express and me against Vader. So the last minute changes like that happened. Uh, I don't know how, you know, he got all that uh, clout, probably because his dad, he was at Armstrong, and, you know, he, he wasn't anything at the time. But, uh, yeah, so even then it got changed. So you, you're going up to look at that sheet and you're scared to death because, you're going to have a nice match with uh, the Express or maybe a Barry Windham or somebody. Or you're going to end up with Abdullah and Vader and the Road Warriors and uh, uh, Rick Steiner's another stiff one. Doesn't hurt you on purpose, but uh, he is crazy. But uh, so, that's, so that's pretty much how it is. You know, you're nervous, you're scared, you see your name up there, you say, oh, holy shit, you know. You go in the corner and say your prayers that you don't get killed. Yeah. <laughs> well, can I ask you the, the your thoughts on the flip side of that? We talk about what it means to be, you know, a good underneath guy, and and you were talking about the the over guys who didn't take care of you, who were overly violent or or whatever. Yes. What about the bad underneath guys? Like uh, the w- example that always comes up when people talk about uh, how not to how not to do the job is the Mike Blackwell incident when he no sold his tag match with the skyscrapers. And yes. Sid and Dan Spivey legitimately just beat the hell out of him yeah, on live television, and then apparently beat him nearly to death in the locker room too. Yeah. Uh, I saw I, the what? same thing, the same thing uh, with Eddie Gilbert. He got with a, he had a match, and the guy just he didn't know anything. He couldn't even hit the ropes. He he no sold everything. Um, he didn't sell whatever Eddie's finish was, and Eddie come back and and pushed him up against the wall. And uh, I think he's Sullivan was in charge, was in the locker room. Anyways, he says, this son of a bitch is never coming back here again. I don't ever want to see him. He says, I'll kill him if he ever comes back here again. You never saw the guy again? <laughs> so, so yeah, that, uh, that, that happened. Like I said, that Spivey thing, that was, that was just brutal. Well, um, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was, no, I'm just saying, I was just... I was lucky. I was always the uh, the little kid that did his homework and uh, you know didn't say nothing, didn't no trouble or nothing. So at least anybody saw. Well, let me ask you something. You're you're in the back. You know, you're you're watching. You know, like you said, you've read your bullet. Your third or fourth match of the night, and you're watching another guy, and he's he's no selling or he's not being very good underneath what goes through your mind of i have to follow this crap well if i watched that and i saw that your first thought is you know this guy never be back or i hope he doesn't get hurt because he doesn't want to take a bump he doesn't want to do anything um that's pretty much all all you think about you know you don't and, and you think of, of course i don't care who you are, uh, you, especially in, in wrestling or any other sport, you've always got that little bit of competitiveness. 
even if you're a job, or even if you're going after a Vader or whatever, you want to do what you do the best you can. You want to look as good or as bad as they want you to look. And it's all about job security. That's how it was with me. You know, I didn't want to go through to have, uh, you know, lucky enough to have one show with NWA uh, and then have no more. Like so many dozens and dozens of jobbers I saw that, uh, you know, maybe had one match and I never saw them again. <laughs> but there was some, and there were some old ones that were like me, actually, me and Mike Jackson and George South, Keith Steinborn was the devil of the Italian Stallion, Mike Justice, uh, Curtis Thompson. We were kind of the, the gang, the group of the jobbers, you know, yeah, and the new yeah, guys that come in and we talked to them. It's, it's funny in doing some research for the show, your profile on the internet database, uh, internet wrestling database has numerous tag matches against the road warriors, uh, midnight express where it's, question mark and randy hogan and it's it's like these guys were so unimportant to history that even the bookers didn't track didn't take their name write, down they didn't write their name down <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> but we, well we, but again you got to think the old days and it's not in that they built stars they don't build stars anymore that's fair when we started the show we talked about the theory i mentioned benny said that wrestling is a team sport and that probably sounds illogical to some because you talked about building stars you know the individual talent sure. but there's so much teamwork that comes into play to make a match work i mean the booker the stipulations like we talked all all night about the underneath guy having to be good at putting over the star the star has to give the underneath guy enough to get the crowd going or get people involved uh the referee needs to be in the right spot needs to know what they're doing the announce team needs to be able to sell it um, I mean, really, you listen to a modern match, be it a, a Excalibur on AEW or Michael Cole, where they spend half the match talking about Sprite or whatever the sponsor is or some crap that they, they don't even know what some of the moves are that's happening in the ring. And it's awful. Yeah. Um, but what are your thoughts on, on that, uh, that idea that wrestling is a team sport? I uh, totally agree. Well, again. There's there's different scenarios that happen. If you're doing TV and you're doing a Vader, uh, a 30-minute super squash match, you can't do much. So it doesn't look bad because, you know, I'm going to go up there. He's going to pick me up. He's going to slam me. He's going to do this monkey thing on me once or twice, and then he's going to leave. So you don't have to have any thought, and it really doesn't matter. Then you get in a, a, a better match, okay? Now, um, as far as my position, I've got to really listen because whether it be the referee or my opponents, they're calling the match. They're telling me what to do. And if I don't do it or I do it wrong or whatever else, then that screws up that one team member can hurt the whole rest of the team. They can, they can totally screw up the match just by missing one spot. So um, you're in a regular match and you, you have to listen to the referee you have to listen to your opponent. Um, if you happen to be one of the guys that are going over, you know, uh, especially uh, you've got to watch the crowd. You got to listen and listen to the crowd. And uh, if you're a heel, there's always some old lady in the front row that wants to beat you up or something. That's the one you pick on. You know, you razz her the whole match, and and she gets the crowd going, and they're watching her as much as the match. And that's what makes it fun for the crowd and exciting and everything. Um, but yes, it, it's definitely a team sport 90% of the time. Well, as we wrap up here, Randy, again, thanks so much for your time. We love having you on. I, I have, uh, uh, we've been talking a lot about the underneath guys, but I have a question, uh, something I wanted to get to when we, when we had you on the first time, we were kind of focusing on your life and career. Uh, like I said, I, I was doing some research and, and I saw, you know, I watched some of your old matches. I was looking at the the Internet Wrestling Database, which tracks records of everybody from main stars, indie guys, shows you didn't know existed, crowds of 50 people in a parking lot or wow. you know, 50,000 people in a stadium. Um, however, it 
it makes a mistake. It was something we, Benny and I had talked about wanting to ask your thoughts on uh, that I've seen the mistake made before, and the database runs with it. Your 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 uh, profile runs with it. While you were running Randy Hogan WCW early NWA, the the WWF had a jobber or excuse me a, a enhancement guy named Scott Colton. Scott Colton. And at some point, <laughs> someone decided that that was you. And I was wondering if you could kind of like how did that happen? How did you become Scott? Where did when did Scott Colton and Randy Hogan become the same person? Because there's days you were literally on TV at the same time on separate channels. Like how did that happen? <laughs> I absolutely have no idea where it started. It was some uh, some uh, little dirt sheet that somebody put that on, and from there another uh, uh, profile would, would pop out, and then uh, Wikipedia even got on it. <laughs> and and I went and really I think I just got it taken off a couple of months ago finally because I keep saying you know I don't know Scott Colton. I never met Scott Colton. I never saw Scott Colton work. Now I saw a picture of him. Um, yes, he had turquoise shorts, short, uh, tights that I had on. He had blonde hair, but his was shorter. He didn't have a mustache. Of course, the sheets say, "Oh yeah, Randy Hogan shaved his mustache and went and worked with Scott Colton." Then he grew it back and came back to WCW. You can, I've had this mustache since I was 18 years old. Never cut it off. You know, it used to be dark brown, but then I had a bleach of blonde, and, and now it's all natural, blonde or gray, whatever. But, yeah, I don't know how it got started. I have no idea. I can't even find anybody that knows how it you, got started. You've uh, you've changed your facial hair patterns a few times in the years we've been doing the show, Benny. What do you think? You think you can uh, shave the glorious Randy Hogan handlebar mustache? Uh, for a match in Philadelphia and then grow it back fully for a match in Atlanta two days later? That'd be kind of hard. Oh. Man, he could do it, though. If anybody <laughs> could do it, he could do it. <laughs> That's what I like used to have I have that, no uh, idea. The, the Dick Popeil guy used to have the uh, the spray-on hair, so I want to get like a spray-on yeah. mustache. Oh, the, it, was um, like, it was like little fuzz that come out of a can. You know? Yeah, you had hair in a can. Wasn't it Ron Popeil? It might have been. Yes, he had all right. kinds of stuff. And if you call the next 10 minutes, we're going to give you this set of Ginsu knives. Look at but this. Wait, they cut through a can and then slice a tomato. It slices. It dices. <laughs> all, or set all, it and forget it. I was about to say, all punchlines aside, I still have my uh, my Showtime rotisserie. That thing's wonderful for, for chickens and I love those things. Stuff. Well, Benny, as, as we wrap up, well, we had a lot of a lot of good stories and thoughts on the underneath guys. Uh, final questions and thoughts to you. What, what are you thinking? No, I just, I mean, I love interviewing guys like Randy because, again, I, I, I you know, I when, when we were chatting, I had the flashback to when I was fourteen and writing to Vince McMahon Senior, and just, I mean, and it was like from the heart. I mean, I was truly. You know, the guys like Lee Wong and, and uh, Miguel Feliciano and Lenny Solomon and I think Wes Hutchins, who got beat up every single week by by Virgil Butcher or Toro Tanaka or, you know, guys like that. And you, you felt for the guys. But, you know, what did I know as a fan? And then now now looking back, it's like, wow, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Yep. Like I said, even even the, uh, the jobbers back then, for the most part. It was just a different game. I think it was a little tougher, a little rougher. Um, you, if you were physically in shape, and I'm not talking about muscle up, but just just strong and beefy and everything else, like most of them had to be, you know, that cushions a lot of the pain, a lot of the bumps and everything else, that little layer of fat or skin or whatever's underneath there. Um, it helps. But now, you know, you got these Orange Cassidy and uh, Darby Allen type of guys, you know. I don't understand it. And they're putting these guys over. They're beating guys like, what, Wardlow, you know, who's big muscle up and that Luchasaurus dude, whatever. <clears throat> but anyways, I, it, it's just, in the old days, you didn't see that. You didn't see no little skinny guys. I, did you, can you remember any of them? Any little skinny guys that were under or over? Not not back in the day. No, was, no. no that, was, that's was, what I meant. Undersized. That's right. Now you, you've you've got 
promotions out there now putting their world titles on guys that would that would be your underneath guy losing a, a 30 second match to Big John Stud or something like that. Yep. Like I said, it's just a different game right now. Unfortunately, there's not the opportunities like when they had the territories where you could build a name in a certain area and go out and maybe do something and come back to that area and people remember you and you give kind of builds up like a Jeff Jarrett did, you know. Um, there's just not those opportunities anymore. It's, it's a shame because these kids that are going into training uh, and stuff really have visions of of making it and being on TV and having being able to brag to their friends and stuff. It just don't happen no more. All they're going to do is spend their twenty five hundred dollars and and walk away and tell everybody, yeah, "I'm a professional wrestler. Come to my backyard. I'll show you how I take it." Here's my title belt to prove it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> The fact that you have you have self-trained wrestlers is just a crazy concept, considering how how easy it is to to hurt someone or yourself without knowing what you're doing. Yep, I only know one self-trained person in my life, and that is Jerry Lawler. Jerry Lawler taught himself. He did a good job. Yeah, he did. But he's the only one that I know of. You know, everybody else had because they didn't have training schools back then. But you know, right. he used to get in with uh, with the Bill Dundees and guys like that, and they actually helped him and everything. But there was no school, there was no formal training or nothing. He pretty much trained himself, um, learned how to do stuff, and again made the right connections. And that's what it's all about. Keep your mouth shut, your ears open, do what you're told, don't bitch, moan, and complain. Be thankful for what you got. Yep. And, that'll, and that'll get you more. That is very true. Tell you what, Benny, you uh, you put some of the talent, and I use that term loosely, on TV today and throw them back in the Memphis territory. They'd be carrying bags and cleaning toilets before they'd, win a, before right. they'd win a match. Orange hey, we're sitting down here with Yeah. Yeah, down here with uh, like Eddie Graham, you know, when he had four right. championship wrestling in the same way, um, they wouldn't think about it. Yeah, put- I used to go down there all the time trying to get to work. I'd go down to the office all the time and uh, couldn't get nothing. But every time I went, there was guys working in the ring, um, practicing, and they weren't students. These were some of the name guys. So they constantly did that. I used to go up there. I used to, I used to bug Steve Kern to death, just trying to get a match, trying to get a match, and uh, him and Mike Graham were running against the time. And then finally, I got a match against Al Perez. There you go. And what a, and how nice that was, you know. And uh, Scott Hall when he looked like uh, Magnum PI. Yes. <laughs> the, he really did too. Oh, I mean, he did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the original. But, uh, sc- Go ahead. No, I was going to say his his original look, and then even his uh, early diamond stud days before he slicked the hair back and decided he had an accent. He was uh, <laughs> he was a big boy. Well, coming from Tampa with all the Cubans, I guess that was easy for him to pick up. I'll tell you but, what. Uh, uh, no, go ahead. It's, I'm just saying it's funny how they give people all these stupid gimmicks until one finally sticks. And coming in mind is my good friend Barry Darso. Oh How many God. different gimmicks did he <laughs> have until finally he got in demolition? Oh yeah. my God! Yeah, he had what a repo man, blacktop bully, crusher, Khrushchev. What else? Right, he was a, was a golf, golf guy one time too. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, let, as we wrap up though, you were talking about setting the gimmicks. Think about think about somebody like an Orange Cassidy. Or a Joey Ryan. I mean, obviously he's had some some issues. Tell go go book the card and tell the Sheik or the Road Warriors or Dan Spivey or somebody like that. We're gonna put you in the in the ring with a guy whose gimmick is that wrestling is fake and shouldn't be taken seriously. Tell me that guy walks out of the ring under his own power. Impossible. <laughs> and if he did make it out of the ring, he'd never make it out of the locker room. Right, exactly. <laughs> If he, and if he happened to crawl out of the locker room on his hands and knees, once he got to the parking lot, 
They take that away from him. <laughs> and then Bill Watts would fine him and fire him. Oh, and beat his ass. Yes. Right, and beat his ass too. <laughs> well, uh, Randy, as always, a pleasure. Uh, before we let you go, you were saying before we got to record, you have a uh, an event coming up. I'll let you plug that before we let you go. What, what, what do you got coming up? Yeah, River, River City WrestleCon. It's in Jacksonville this Saturday and Sunday at the fairgrounds. They're having about 60, uh, 60 stars there. And, of course, I'll be one of them. But uh, everybody from uh, Kurt Angle is going to be there. Bret Hart's going to be there. Again, we mentioned Demolition's going to be there. Uh, Kevin Sullivan. I can't remember all of them. But there's a zillion of them. Anyways, this Saturday and Sunday, if anybody's in Jacksonville area, it's a great show. It is. They have uh, uh, live matches also. Um in between, like an intermission thing, it's it's really a good setup they have there. Very, very fan and family friendly. Very so if cool. you're there, come and get it. Well, you you heard them. That's the going right. to be uh, June June 10th and June 11th. WrestleCon mm-hmm. in Jacksonville. Randy Hogan and 59 other guys that you might want to meet too. I don't know, but uh, so I, I love it. I'll keep anybody in our, any of our fans in the Florida or Jacksonville area, make a trick, a trip out there. sounds like a good time. And go ahead. This time only anybody who comes in and says, Hey, we heard you on the Dan and Benny show. I'm going to give them a free signed eight by 10. There you go. There you, there you go. go. I, I love it. 20 so, bucks right there. <laughs> <laughs> what a, what a plug. I, I love that. So, uh, Randy, again, thank you so much for your time for Thanks, the uh, the epitome of the, the, the good, like you said, one of the best underneath guys in the history of the business for uh, the original Long Island Ice B, Benny Scala. I'm Dan Spashano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. See you at the matches.